This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, New Zealanders accuse the Australian government of a cash grab over an expensive visa that will soon be redundant. I've spent thousands of dollars unnecessarily in a time of economic hardship. I'm disappointed and disheartened in the process and feel that I've been left financially disadvantaged by poor communication from the government. And fears the trade getting tropical fish for international aquariums might be depleting the Pacific of the colourful creatures. Common uh, damsel fishes, butterfly fish and so on are not very interesting in the terms that you need lots of them to, to make money. And how Kaneka, a music style often linked to New Caledonia's independence movement, has evolved for a new generation. There was still strong political research and stuff, but it was a very uh, festive music. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. It was supposed to be the first visit to a Pacific country by a sitting U.S. president. But after months of tense negotiations and even the declaration of a public holiday, all the planning would be for naught after the White House cancelled Joe Biden's trip to Papua New Guinea. As Thierry Lepani in Port Borsby reports, the fallout is being felt across the country. For weeks, U.S. President Joe Biden's planned visit to Papua New Guinea dominated the headlines and was the talk of the town. Breaking news, Joe Biden has cancelled his historic visit to Australia next week. As the trip's cancellation on Wednesday morning, just a day after a public holiday had been declared for the visit, caught many by surprise. On the streets of the capital, Port Moresby, people were coming to terms with the news. If the president has already made a commitment and all the Papua New Guineans have already prepared themselves, then he should have uphold his commitments. He must be committed to his commitments. Others took a more positive approach to the news and praised the gains from the planned trip. Now it's been announced that he will not be attending. Um, of course, there's some disappointment. But personally speaking, I I appreciate that even his proposed visit has gotten the municipal authorities into action. Uh, They've been making a concerted effort to clean up the city in anticipation of the visit. So, yeah, I mean, while there's uh, disappointment that he's no longer coming, I think there's also some appreciation that we will have a bit more of a cleaner and organized city than normal. According to the White House, Joe Biden will travel to Japan for the G7 summit, but would not travel to Australia and PNG because of political negotiations in Washington, D.C. PNG's opposition leader, Joseph Lelang, says many citizens who were eager to catch a glimpse of Mr. Biden would be disappointed, but he understood that domestic issues in the United States needed to be resolved. He, too, looked at the positives, saying the cancellation would give the government time to release more information about a security treaty with the U.S., which he described as sketchy and confusing. Dr. Bal Kama, who is an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Canberra, believes Prime Minister James Marpe will accept the decision by the United States President to cancel the visit. I think uh, it'll be understandable to PNG and to uh, Marpe and his team that obviously um, domestic politics play a large part um, in a leader's decision as to whether it is the right time to leave the country. And so there will be understanding, I think. There will be understanding, more understanding than uh, frustration. Dr. Kama has also described the news as being a blessing, as many questions amounting 
about a proposed US-PNG defense cooperation treaty. The treaty was slated to be signed by Joe Biden on Monday. Photos of the treaty have been leaked to the media and concerns have been raised over parts of the deal, which give the U.S. unilateral access to PNG. Dr. Kama says there are a lot of questions around the provisions in the treaty. Now that President Biden is not coming, in some ways it is a blessing uh, in disguise there. It is a, it is a providence uh, there for PNG to really, uh, PNG government to really look at those concerns. And because those concerns are serious. And if we are to take from some of the leaks that have come out recently in the last 24 hours, the parameters or the proposal that, that, that tries to cover is quite significant. In fact, it's almost unprecedented to see that a foreign force, based on those leaks, a foreign force would have access to you know, the entire infrastructure air and sea infrastructure of the country. And Pacific Beat has sought com- comment from Prime Minister James Marape's office, but there's been no official statement on Joe Biden's cancelled trip as yet. That was Thierry Lepani reporting from Port Moresby. And the White House's National Security, Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has said the U.S. President Joe Biden will convene all Pacific Island leaders for a major summit later this year. Let's stay in Papua New Guinea for this story as well. PNG police are investigating the dealings of an Australian entrepreneur embroiled in a payments scandal with the country's port officials. Don Matheson, a government consultant in PNG, became the focus of an international criminal investigation following revelations by the ABC and the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project back in March. Now PNG authorities are investigating whether $100,000 in payments to port officials were bribes to help a multinational company will win lucrative contracts or legitimate side ventures. Liam, Sp- Liam Fox spoke to the journalist who broke the story, that's Josh Robertson from ABC Investigations, and he began by asking him what it is Mr. Mrs. Mr. Matheson is alleged to have done. Well, Don Matheson is a one-time owner of an Australian A-League soccer team, and he reinvented himself as a government consultant in PNG. He's come to prominence because of his role in offshore payments involving PNG ports officials and a multinational that won huge PNG contracts in 2017. Leaked bank records from the Pandora Papers showed that Mr Matheson uh, received millions from a port operator called ICTSI around the time it won contracts to run PNG's two biggest international shipping terminals. And then around the same time, it appears that he made payments to the benefits of PNG Ports Corporation officials. There was the payments range from cash um, directed in the name of these officials to purchases in Australia of four-wheel drive vehicles and also medical equipment, uh, dental chairs for the Port Moresby Dental Clinic uh, owned by one of the officials' wives. So were police looking into his activities before your story broke and what are they doing now? No, they weren't. Uh, they have launched an investigation now into the, into the payments and the contracts as a result of uh, our work, the ABC's work with the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. They say they're now investigating whether or not these payments were bribes paid to PNG Ports officials 
to secure the contract for the multinational that was paying Don Matheson as a consultant, or whether they are legitimate side ventures unrelated to government contracts. And is it only PNG police who are looking into this? Is any other body, any other authority? It's not just PNG police. The police themselves say they're getting uh, assistance from Interpol and from Australian authorities because of the involvement of Don Matheson. Also, the Prime Minister has ordered investigations by the, uh, the PNG's corruption watchdog, the ICAC. Um, he's also commissioned an uh, internal government review to be led by his uh, key minister, the State Enterprises Minister, William Duma. As you just mentioned, shortly after your story broke, James Marape, Prime Minister, ordered the corruption watchdog to investigate PNG ports. He also said he knew Mr Matheson, but only as a, a golf buddy uh, and not any more intimately than that. But it now appears that may not be the case. Well, yes, Mr Marape distanced himself um, publicly from uh, Mr Matheson in the wake of that. He did confirm that they played golf together in Port Moresby, but he says... He plays golf with a lot of people, and he doesn't tolerate corruption. Now, it's since come to light that uh, through documents that we've obtained, they show that Mr Marape in 2021 made a key introduction for uh, Don Matheson. He introduced him to his key minister, William Duma, who is, of course, now tasked with running the internal government review into Mr Matheson's involvement with PNG Ports, uh, now, that introduction in 2021 led to Mr. D- uh, Mr. Duma having a follow-up meeting with Mr. Matheson. And Mr. Matheson pitched his idea to plan redevelopment of a key waterfront site owned by the government in Port Moresby. As a result of that meeting, Mr. Duma endorsed that proposal in a letter to the uh, boss of the state-owned enterprise, which uh, controls the site, and he said that he suggested uh, that the enterprise enter into discussions with Mr Matheson regarding uh, that proposal. And have Mr Marape or Mr Duma had anything to say in response to these latest revelations? Well, these revelations have prompted uh, transparency advocates, so Transparency International um, in PNG, have said that if there are any prior dealings involving Mr Duma in particular... Um, Uh, well, actually, any prior dealings between Mr Matheson and senior politicians are a concern to them because of the potential that this could derail any investigations into the PNG ports matter. Uh, Now, Mr Marape has not responded to to our questions, uh, but Mr Duma has uh, emailed me directly with a very curious response. In essence, he's denied that any such dealings with Mr Matheson have taken place. But he's also expressed a really curious idea about press freedom, about media freedom. Um, He's told me that um, unless I can show written approval from the Australian Federal Communications Minister that I have government approval to approach the Prime Minister of another country, he can't really respond to the questions. Uh, I've replied that um, as a journalist and as the ABC is an independent publicly funded broadcaster, it doesn't require approval from any minister to put questions to anybody. What a interesting response there from the PNG government to journalist Josh Robertson, who you just heard. He's from ABC Investigations, and he was talking there to Pacific Beats reporter Liam Fox. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. 
From bright orange clownfish to dazzling angelfish, tropical fish enthusiasts often find their scaly pets in Pacific waters. In fact, a market for them is growing in New Caledonia, but there's also concern that stocks of the rarest underwater creatures could soon be depleted. Cooper Williams in Numia with more. Fish are friends, not food. That is from the well-known Disney film Finding Nemo, the story of a young clownfish taken from his home and sold to a Sydney dentist for his aquarium. Marlon, the little clownfish from the reef. It's my dad! He took on a shark! I heard he took on three. What viewers don't realise is a special aquarium fish order would set you back hundreds or even thousands of dollars just for one fish. We ship clownfish to Australia. What we have here isn't the real Nemo, but it is a clownfish. It has a big white mark on the side of the face and is endemic to New Caledonia. Sebastian Ragu is a tropical aquarium fish trader. He's new to the business, having just received his boating licence and permit to operate. Standing in an almost empty two-storey shed, he points to an area where he wants to fill up with hundreds of aquarium tanks. It has always been a dream of mine. I had aquarium fish when I was younger and I love working with them. I would have a competition with my brother to see who could have the most beautiful fish and raise them the best. Mr. Ragu says there is growing demand for the international exportation of tropical fish from New Caledonia. We already have clients here in New Caledonia, but the rest of our clients are in Europe, throughout Asia and all over the world. We mostly service large hotel aquariums, but where we ship depends on the demand and where the special orders come from. The Southern Province government accredited his company earlier this year which allows him to catch and trade tropical aquarium fish under a special commercial fishing licence. If you come back in a year, it will be much different. I'm planning to fill the warehouse with aquariums and start growing corals as well. He says it can be difficult to make money and fish prices vary from as little as three Australian dollars to as much as $3,000 for just one fish. It is hard to make money. The setup requires a big investment and you have to ensure the water quality and all the systems are perfect. But we can compete with Australia because we have fish that can only be found here in New Caledonia that are very prized by collectors. The licences are only given to a handful of operators throughout New Caledonia. In the southern province, there's just three operators. There isn't a big black market trade, but it does happen. The idea with the licence is to restrict it so there are only a few operators and it doesn't have too big of an ecological impact. Dr Michelle Kulbicki is a specialist in tropical fish and has lived in New Caledonia for many years. New Caledonia is a place where it's quite expensive to live and therefore people who want to make money with uh, this type of trade will probably have to catch high-priced fish. Common uh, damselfishes, butterfly fish and so on are not very interesting in the terms that you need lots of them to, to make money. He says the biggest challenge with the current licence setup is the absence of caps on fish species, meaning traders can select rarer fish to catch. The major problem is, of course, the amount of fish you're going to catch and which species you're going to catch. Concerning the the number of fish, as I was just saying, so there's two things that come into play there. There's rarity and there is endemism. 
And there is also, of course, if the fish is pretty or not pretty. Uh, and uh, also if it is difficult to, to, to raise or if it's easy. So there's a number of parameters that come into play. Dr. Kulbicki says traders need to be careful when selecting rare or endemic fish. Rare fish, of course, get better price. Uh, you cannot catch many. And if you catch many, you're going to deplete the species. So and this you don't want, even if it's not a, a very important species ecologically speaking, it could be important in, in matters that we don't know. So it's never good to overfish a species, especially rare ones. So after that, uh, there is endemism. There are uh, what we could call very local endemics. I mean, species which are only found in New Caledonia or only found on the Great Barrier Reef or, or this or this place. Actually, there are very few of such species in our region. Then you have what I would call regional endemics. That is species that you'll find uh, all over the Great Barrier Reef, but nowhere else. Or all over New Caledonia, but nowhere else. You need to, to know exactly what they need to grow to survive because each species has its own specificity in terms of food, of a number of other parameters as well as temperature, salinity, you, you know it. However, when meeting demands for tropical fish in aquariums and regulating the trade, Dr. Kilbicki says the limited licenses may be a sustainable option. In my opinion, it is probably a viable activity, but it needs to be controlled. When you see what happens in places like Philippines, Indonesia, and then a few other places where they fish, they, they deplete the reefs. Uh, so once the, the small species are gone, then you get um, problems. The predators do not have prey. These small species do have quite an important impact in terms of functioning of the reefs. Harlan Martin works with Sebastian Ragu, and he's adamant that protecting the environment and conserving tropical fish stock will be front of mind. As a Pacific Islander, I'm very conscious of the environment and our connection to it. I can't speak for other businesses, but we are trying to never take more than we need. We would like to give back to the environment and even try breeding corals and clams and endangered fish to release. The southern province government were not available to comment for this story, but have said they'll be monitoring the trade to keep track of the species caught and exported. That was Cooper Williams in Numia with that story. Want all the latest Pacific news, sports and entertainment delivered to your inbox every Friday? ABC Pacific is launching a free weekly newsletter with exclusive content from across the Pacific by your favourite ABC Pacific presenters. Be the first to know about upcoming events and competitions in your area, plus much more absolutely free and direct to you. It's easy to sign up. Just go to abc.net.au slash Pacific and enter your email to join today. Now it's time to find out what's making news around the Pacific. And to do that, as always, we're joined by Carl Evans. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Priyanka. And now a story that I'm very interested in. I've been reporting on it a bit. Um, it's about medicinal cannabis in the Pacific. And Cook Islands seems to be signing on to it. Um, ca- medicinal cannabis products will likely be available there by June. J- that's just a month away. Why this change, Carl? Yeah, so they could be available to some people as early as then and okay. will definitely be available by the end of the year. So 
<clears throat> That's according to the country's Secretary of Health. His name's Bob Williams, who spoke to RNZ. And he said amendments still need to be made to the existing legislation. However, the Ministry of Health can issue licenses to pharmacists in the meantime to import the medical, uh, the medicinal cannabis in order to help patients who, who require it urgently. So, yeah, so the board will meet next month to get that process underway and it uh, shouldn't take longer than June to, uh, to go through. Mm, very interesting. So I guess this is to import medicinal ca- cannabis and use it on patients there um, rather than the cultivation, which is what some other Pacific countries are trying, uh, like Vanuatu that recently passed laws allowing the cultivation of medicinal cannabis. And um, Guam as well is also experimenting Mm -hmm. with um, uh, medicinal cannabis. And I know there, in Guam at least, there was some frustration that the licensing and and sort of the policies and progress around it was a bit slow. Do we know if there's like similar criticisms in Cook Islands as well? Yeah, some campaigners seem to think so. They say uh, Prime Minister Mark Brown said he would act very quickly um, to get to get this through. However, that was back back in August, which was you know we're talking more than six months ago now. Um, and another another sort of well known campaigner on the matter within the Cook Islands, uh, Steve Boggs, he said he'd like to actually see a stopgap measure uh, put in place to allow designated growers to start cultivating cannabis while that law was being changed, so effectively they can hit the ground running once the law goes through. Oh well, there you go. Yes, I guess there is that cultivation aspect to the law law change as well, and. It's interesting, in Cook Islands, this has all come about because of a referendum um, in 2022 um, that actually put the question to the people if they wanted um, uh, medicinal cannabis to be allowed in um, in Cook Islands. And, um, well, it came back with a yes. And um, it seems like the people of Cook, Islanders, uh, Cook Island did, did want um, medicinal cannabis on the territory, on, on their shores. Uh, in the country, and so yeah, the the government put in, put in place this this special working group to draft policy, put it in place, and it's it's uh, interesting to see it's all it's all come about quite quickly. Well, some would say quite quickly, some would say it take, take some time. I guess you can't please everyone. Um, yeah, I believe it was just last year the referendum was, but maybe maybe I'm mistaken with the dates. Maybe it was earlier than that. Um, but yes, very interesting to keep an eye on and, and see what impact that has there on the and the health and society there in Cook Islands. Um, and now let's head to American Samoa. It's been a while since we've touched on the measles crisis there. Um, we were reporting that childcare centers had closed, schools had closed as a result of a few cases there in American Samoa. Tell us the, the latest there, Kyle. Yeah, so uh, uh, early childcare centers and, and daycare centers have actually reopened this week. Oh, right. Yes, but uh, the, the Territory's governor actually amended that original plan to allow them um, to reopen. Initially, it was, it was supposed to be later. However, all students, there is a catch, all students, teachers and support staff must be fully vaccinated with the MMR vaccine. So this is reported by the New Zealand, New Zealand Herald. Uh, it's the same across the board. That goes with public schools, um, elementary schools and high schools as well. They've actually been open for a while. They reopened back on uh, back on May 1. Uh, luckily, though, um, early childcare centres were allowed to open earlier simply because uh, vaccination rates have increased uh, across the board. Um, it's now at 89.5% in elementary schools, 97 and 98% uh, in elementary and high schools, and uh, and 56.5% uh, in, in daycare centres. And while that number sounds low, 91.7% of those daycare centres have received their first vaccine dose. Oh, well, I mean, I hope that's signs of, well, not only boosted vaccinations as you were talking about there, Kyle, and that people are... Um, you know, getting the jab and protecting themselves from this incredibly, well, what can be 
deadly, but also very virulent um, disease. It spreads very quickly. Um, but also um, the fact that I guess it sounds like perhaps cases aren't turning up. The, the earliest um, numbers I could find was um, from about a couple of weeks ago, from the 30th of April, posted by the American Samoan Health page. Um, their report is saying that there's, there's they were still standing at two confirmed cases then with 52 probable, probable cases and six cases that had been cleared. Um, so two confirmed cases, that's the latest I could find um, there of measles in American Samoa. Um, I know they had trouble sending their lab tests abroad to get testing and confirm if those probable cases were indeed measles. Um, but the fact that it is low, the fact that things are opening up like these schools, Kyle, I guess hopefully, fingers crossed it bodes well and means the outbreak hasn't spread too far or hasn't become too uncontrollable uncontrollable, and um, that uh, American Samoa will, will soon be over the hill and, and um, yes, not have to worry about, about measles anymore. Fingers crossed, wholeheartedly agree. Yes, yes, indeed. And if we do get any updates on the on the numbers there in um, in American Samoa, we'll keep you updated here on ABC Radio Australia. Now let's head to French Polynesia. We we did, we're talking about the elections, those historic elections which got pro independence um, government in for the first time in ten years, I believe. And now the actual cabinet has been announced. Ten minute the ten member government who will lead the country or, or the French territory, I guess. Um, it, that includes four women. Kyle, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the newly elected president uh, Motai Brotherson has appointed his ministers, um, several of which are actually new. New to politics, the youngest, for instance, his transport minister is only 29 years old. I mean, y- y- younger than us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, k- kicking goals. Well, well done to them. Uh, but more, more importantly, though, uh, four women have been announced. Uh, uh, Vanina Kroles, uh, she's, she's the minister in charge of the public sector and employment. Uh, Nahima Tamati has been made sports minister. Uh, Minati Galenin, the new housing minister. While the last, uh, Nat- uh, Natalie Salman Hurdy, has been added as an additional position and she'll be the delegate responsible for people with uh, with disabilities. Yes, yeah, very interesting to see. I mean, you, you did talk to us about this earlier, Kyle, and um, you were saying that the aim was to have the government led by half female um, female ministers and half male. Um, it sounds like that didn't happen if there was four out of ten? Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, we, we did report that. Uh, however, according to the new president, um, he, he did say initially that uh, more women than men had been aspiring to be ministers. However, some some women had actually withdrew uh, their, their intent to their, their applications, basically. Therefore, he wasn't able to uh, wasn't able to form government with that 50-50 gender parity. But I guess I guess he came close. <laughs> <laughs> that that is true, and um, yes, it's it is you know a forty percent, I guess, not quite fifty percent, but forty percent, um, and quite a lot better than a lot of other Pacific um, countries as well. So I guess we should give credit where credit's due. Now it's time for the government to actually put put things to work and see if they actually um, live up to those expectations and deliver. You know, if you have female leaders, I guess the hope is is that they'll also deliver um, policies that will um, affirm gender equality in the territory as well. So we'll, we'll we'll wait and see if that happens as well. Now to some sporting news, Kyle. Um, we were talking about the OFC Champions League yesterday. It continues today 
what's on the fixture this time? That's right. So uh, teams from Group B uh, will kick off their second day of action. Uh, Tiger Sport from New Caledonia, they'll face the PNG champion Takati United, uh, while Vanuatu's or the hometown hometown team, if you're a Blackbird, uh, they'll take on AS uh, Pire. They're from Tahiti. So both uh, both Pire and uh, and Hakati, they can secure a semi-final berth with wins today, uh, while the Blackbird and uh, Antigua, they need to win to keep their to keep their tournament hopes alive. I particularly hope um, the Blackbird can get a win there, just given that it's, it's being played in Vanuatu, and I know it's their first time ever competing in this tournament. Oh, really? Um, and as we were reporting yesterday, there were a couple of games. Uh, I believe Solomon Islands was playing and a couple of others. How did those go? That's right. So the Solomon Warriors, they uh, they secured a win. Uh, they beat uh, Le, Lupe Ole Soega from uh, from Samoa. They won 3-1, uh, while Auckland City uh, defeated Suva FC 3-1 as well. So uh, Auckland's actually booked their place in the semi-final. Uh, meanwhile, Suva will now play the Solomon Warriors in what will be a, a somewhat of a showdown for that uh, that second spot uh, in that in that group Group A semi-final. Unfortunately for the Samoan champions, uh, they're eliminated after yesterday's loss. Oh, that is that is a shame. Um, but there's always <laughs> next year, I guess. Um, <laughs> Kyle, thank you for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around uh, the region when it comes to news. And coming up here on Pacific Beat, we'll have more news in store for you. Um, one of them is around, I guess, changes to Australia's citizenship that affects many Pacific Islanders who come to Australia via New Zealand. The changes have made it a bit easier for New Zealanders to settle here and access things like free healthcare, university. But there are some criticisms that people who forked out lots and lots of money to get earlier visas have now been sort of left shortchanged with this new change. And they say that the government should have communicated better that this change was on the cards. You'll hear exactly what they have to say coming up. And we'll also get a taste of some Kenneka music in New Caledonia also coming up in the show. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm your host, Priyanka Srinivasan. Some New Zealanders living in Australia have accused the government of a cash grab over changes to the way they become Australian citizens. They paid thousands of dollars to apply for permanent resident visas just months before the government announced the visa would no longer be required for citizenship. The Kiwis say they should have been warned of change, um, that change was coming, and that they want their money back, as Melissa Macon reports. It was this announcement by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, just shy of Anzac Day, that had Kiwis living in Australia celebrating. From the 1st of July, New Zealand citizens living in Australia who hold a special category visa will be able to apply directly for Australian citizenship without going through the permanent residence provision first, provided that they meet the four-year residence and other normal citizenship eligibility requirements. The controversial special category visa was the brainchild of Conservative Prime Minister John Howard and made it difficult for Kiwis to access a range of supports without first becoming permanent residents and then citizens. Until now, the Permanent Resident Visa, also known as the New Zealand Stream Skilled Independent Visa Subclass 189, costs just over $4,000. That's without agent fees. Kiwi Rob Knox was thrilled when he heard this costly step was being removed, but felt blindsided, having just paid for his visa in full. 
if we'd had that heads up from our migration lawyer or an email from the department, we would have maybe gone, oh, ooh, what's going on? Something's changing. This is really interesting. And look, we may not have done it. We may have just carried on. It appears the Department of Home Affairs sped up the processing of visa applications in the lead-up to the April 21 announcement. This wasn't exactly a surprise. The government flagged it was working to improve citizenship pathways in July last year. And that meant creating a task force to help clear a backlog of almost one million applications across the board. Then on December 10, the department put a temporary pause on applications as part of this streamlining. So in December, we maintained that they absolutely knew that the pathway would be changing in a certain amount of time. Like there was, okay, let's get going, let's get these applications, let's process them, let's grab the money, essentially take the money and run. It says it's reduced the backlog by almost 40% in the past year. But Mr Knox says he was not informed, either by the department or his migration lawyer. And because the visa is paid in two instalments, he says he would have withdrawn if he was made aware of changes. It wouldn't have been that difficult to have sent out an email to all of those pending applicants and said, hey, look, things are changing here. There was no update. There's no, there wasn't any communication. It's like, oh, let's fast track this, get the money. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. The department's website states that 90% of applications take 25 months to process. In May last year, Mr Knox's agent had estimated his would take about 19 months. So he was surprised when it was approved on January 19, just eight months later. You can't tell me that on the 10th of December, the powers that be didn't know that in three months' time because these are slow-moving wheels. In a statement, the department said those who received their visas before the changes could access the immediate benefits of permanent residence, like the National Disability Insurance Scheme and automatic acquisition of Australian citizenship at birth for their children born in Australia. Rob Knox doesn't see it that way. I've held a PR for 85 days, which I paid $6,000 for, which is basically redundant. It has no use whatsoever. A fellow Kiwi, who we'll call Tom, said his permanent resident visa was also granted in January, just four months after it was lodged. It now appears that the expediting of visas was a means to generate additional revenue prior to the announcement. The government should have paused all applications when serious discussions were being held about the future of the 189. At no stage did they offer a refund or tell me that the visa would become redundant. Joanne Cox chairs the lobby group OzKiwi and says the reforms go far beyond anything they could have anticipated. Here's the Prime Minister again. Any child born in Australia from the 1st of July 2022 to a parent who holds a special category visa and is a permanent resident at the time of the child's birth will automatically acquire Australian citizenship at birth. They have basically reset the clock back to the pre-February 2001 arrangements, which is quite amazing that they have done that. But she does not agree that there has been a cash grab and says there were signs that change was on the horizon. Well, I think firstly the onus is on the applicant because if I was applying for a new visa and suddenly they closed applications on that visa pending a review, my ears would prick up and I'd be saying, why are they doing that? What's that about? Is it going to go? Is it disappearing? Is there going to be something instead of that 109 visa? That would be my first thought as an applicant. A department spokesperson said there were only limited circumstances in which a visa application charge may be refunded. As for Tom, he said he requested a refund but was unsuccessful. 
I've spent thousands of dollars unnecessarily in a time of economic hardship. I'm disappointed and disheartened in the process and feel that I've been left financially disadvantaged by poor communication from the government. That was New Zealand-Australian resident Tom and in Melissa Macon's report. You're listening to Pacific Beat. In New Caledonia, music and politics often go hand in hand. That's particularly true of Kaneka music, music, a genre born from the French Pacific Territory's struggle for independence. But today, amid claims the music is losing its political edge, modern Kaneka artists are innovating to ensure their music and messages continue to be heard by new generations. Yasmin Wright-Gittins in Numia with more. This music style was created for a revolution, but today, its modern artists are embracing Kaneka's new sound and meaning. Martha Womanya is a powerhouse Kaneka artist from the island of Lifu. What makes her sounds uniquely Kaneka is the use of rhythms in her songs which are inspired by traditional instruments and dances. Mother is a part of a new generation of Kaneka artists, a style of music which was developed specifically for the independence movement in the 1980s. She often sings in her traditional language, Jehu, about subjects from love to the future of her people. But there is a resounding theme that crops up in her work, the fierce desire to keep the tradition of Kaneka music alive. This is part of my identity. If you go back a bit to the history of Kaneka, there you are. Kaneka has a history. That That's a start. And I pray that there is no end, that it continues. But for me, when I go to sing, I am proud to sing Kaneka, since I know that it is a style of music which is associated with my origin, my home. As a female Kaneka artist... Her Melanesian culture would have prevented her from taking part, but today she sees it as her responsibility to preserve her country's unique music form. Today we arrive in a generation where we have this desire to promote a bit of our country's music and suddenly it's a source of pride for me as a woman to exhibit Kaneka music. I think that today it is important. It is important that the youth take advantage of their youth to promote this music for generations to come. This month, New Caledonia marked 25 years since the Namir Accord, a process of decolonisation initiated by Jean-Marie Jabal, the leader of the independence movement, who originally brought together artists from New Caledonia with the goal of creating a national music movement. Elaine LeCant is the director of Mangrove Productions, which was the largest producer of Kaneka music until their closure in 2020. I, I was first working in a record store. I saw the music there, but the Kaneka music was the, what they call folk music. Uh, I found out it was not really good quality. Uh, so I decided to go and study sound engineering in Australia, in uh, Sydney. And Kaneka music was just uh, booming at the moment, at the thought. So we, we started producing a lot of Kaneka music. In that time, he saw the Kaneka genre evolve from its birth in the 80s to its boom in the 90s, and now to what he labelled a lull in its second generation. Uh, in 1993, that, uh, the commercial um, success started to come over. Uh, there was still strong political research and stuff, but it was... 
a, a very uh, festive music that thing, you know. I would say in the 90s, when it first started, it was really big. It was really big because we had a lot of uh, new artists coming and they all had their original sound. New Caledonia faces ongoing negotiations over its future, with leaders engaged in talks with Paris after three unsuccessful votes for independence since 2018. Her country's future weighs deeply on Martha's mind. She says that people often make the mistake of thinking the new generation of Kaneka artists are not interested in the politics behind their music. There are three districts in my island, on my island, and I am from the district of Wetch, so I sing for my great chief. I always try to put a piece to pay tribute to my leadership. So there, there are many themes in relation to independence. I think that after everyone has the right to have their opinion on it. Me, of course, I feel good as long as I'm at home and that they don't take my home away from me. But Martha acknowledges the difficulties of keeping people engaged with Kaneka music. Her brother, Andre Womanya, is a composer and singer. His passion for what he calls the musicality of the genre fuels his desire to integrate sounds unique to each artist's origins and embrace musical movements from around the world. Today we have new generations, new musicians with external influences, very solid influences, very jazz influences. When we listen to the Kaneka of those years and when we listen to the Kaneka of today, there is always this breath, these vibrations that are inside. But we feel the news, the influences from outside that have enriched the Kaneka at the level of the musicality as well as the level of the sounds, at the level of the choice of instruments to be able to enrich the canvas, and then at the levels of the rhythms inside. Mother hopes that Kaneka will continue to evolve and embrace change, but takes pride in being a part of the modern Kaneka movement. It is a sign of identity for me. The fact that I'm going to sing Kaneka and that people say that I associate myself with a singer, a female singer Kaneka. Well, we know that I am a woman from New Caledonia, a woman from the islands. I think that we are entering a new era, new arts, news, new singers, new discoveries. We can do something with Kaneka music. That was Martha Waminya ending that story from Yasmin Wright Gittins in Numia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. Recapping the today's show at the top here, we heard from residents in Port Moresby after the White House cancelled Joe Biden's much-anticipated visit to the nation, even after a public holiday was declared in his honour. If the president has already made a commitment and all the Papua New Guineans have already prepared themselves, then he should have uphold his commitments. You can hear more views of people on the streets of Port Moresby by heading and listening to that story that's on our website, ABC Pacific. You can also catch up on any of our other stories there on the website. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan signing off for this edition of Pacific Beat. Do stay tuned, though, because news is next.